0: Howdy, and welcome to Vibe Check, a human-centered discussion about the struggles and opportunities of remote work life and the folks that are defining the future of how we'll live it. I'm Brett Martin, co-founder of Kumo Space and Charge Ventures, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. David Berkus, best-selling author of four books about business and leadership, including Leading from Anywhere, The Essential Guide to Managing Remote Teams, and Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. He's been featured in publications like the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, BBC, NPR, and CNN, among other acronyms. And he's worked with leaders from organizations across industries, including Google, Fidelity, Viacom, and even the U.S. Naval Academy. Welcome, David VibeCheck.
1: Hi, Brett. Thanks so much for having me in your uh,
0: virtual office. It's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, you know, over the past couple of years with the pandemic, you know, we've moved from a situation where you go into the office, you're expected to be there nine to five, your boss can look at you to one in which now you might be working from home. And, you know, there's a lot less obvious visibility. You know, how are managers reacting to not being able to see their employees working? Have you heard any (laughs) interesting stories? How do they feel?
1: Yeah. I mean, I suppose the question would be good managers or bad managers, right? (laughs) Right? When the pandemic really moved people into their first remote leadership role, uh, there were already a a decent set of managers that knew the presence didn't equal productivity, right? That FaceTime was a blessing. It's obviously easier to coordinate certain things and it's easier to build bonds and that sort of stuff when you're in person, but it's a terrible judge of who's productive and who's not. And those people manage the transition actually pretty well. I mean, the big thing now, as most of workers who moved remote are starting to come back to the office some of the time, all of the time, etc., is that potential discrepancy between the people who choose to stay remote and the people who are coming back to the office, which wouldn't be a discrepancy unless we knew that face-to-face had a power to it, right? That said, bad managers really struggle. If they're used to the idea that, well, I don't know how to judge this person's performance, but you know they're, they're already here when I get to work and they are here long after I've left, they must be productive. Well, no, they, they might be playing World of Warcraft for like three hours <laughs> and just really good at faking it. Or they might actually have to put that many hours into work because they're not as productive as someone who can do the job with less presence and most of them flipped by the way from presence to responsiveness either by just calling endless zoom meetings or teams meetings or asking people to constantly check in or really just assuming that the people who responded fastest to email or slack channel were the ones who were most productive I mean, the irony is it's actually the opposite. The people who are are slow to respond to your email are probably slow to respond because they're in the midst of doing deep work or interacting with a client or something else that creates value,
0: right? But how does the manager know you're not just like cleaning your uh, apartment or taking your dog for a walk? Just sort of wondering how folks get comfortable with that. Or, and, and maybe people are. That That's another question is, you know, has the way people worked changed?
1: Well, that's the thing, right? Does it really matter if you're cleaning your office at two in the afternoon, right? I mean, the leaders that had already flipped the mentality that presence doesn't equal productivity adapted because they already knew to check performance based on how well as a team are we, um, what I call in leading from anywhere, working out loud, meaning keeping each other up to date. Are we doing things like regular huddles or daily scrums or stand ups. Are we setting objectives in a place where, a- after we leave meetings, where are we clear about who's committed to what, take what actions, et cetera? And then I can see down the road, a week, two weeks, a month, whether or not you took those actions and achieve those objectives you committed to. You have to actually use objectives and progress towards those objectives as a measure of productivity. You can't just use how much you're working. And and I would argue for most of knowledge work, right? Not not. All, right. My wife is a, is an ER physician. You can't really do that mm-hmm. remotely, but also like you want to judge her and pay her by the hour, right? Because you need someone to be there every hour of the day. But for most yeah. of us in the knowledge work space, I mean, I write books and give speeches and run trainings, right? I do clean my office at two o'clock in the afternoon on random days. And it doesn't matter so long as I hit my actual objectives. I hit my deadlines for the book or I, you know, I show up to that place where I'm going to speak with the right slide deck and that sort of stuff.
0: So it's interesting. What I'm hearing is all the things that we knew we needed to do, create agendas, make sure that we have action items and assigned, you know, in a remote work, those things just become, you know, so much more, more important.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's actually one of my favorite criticisms of the book. You know, we all authors do this. We focus way too much on the one and two star criticisms than the five star reviews on Amazon. Right. Um, But one of the big criticisms was that like, oh, there's nothing in here that isn't just good management. I was like, you're right, but people still struggle with that. I think the difference is the the tools that we focus in on, the mm. collaboration tools that we're using, they allow us to, in my opinion, to stretch the interval of time between this sort of in-person or, or synchronous interactions. They they don't replace them entirely. And that's why it looks very similar uh, how you manage, et cetera. The, the difference is how well good leaders use that time that people are together, either in person or together in a synchronous meeting in order to set people up with very clear picture of their roles and responsibilities what tasks they need to assign and who they need to pass those tasks off to if you do that then you can judge someone's performance based on how well they hit those tasks and not the fact that they sent an email at 8 30 and then they sent one at 5 15 to close out the day
0: or they schedule an email to go out to you at, at 1 a.m to trick you To so, li- yeah it's sort
1: of the virtual <laughs> version of leaving your suit jacket on your chair at the, at the office right yeah
0: so, if a lot of the things that are classic and good stay the same, then what has changed? What has worked about the tools that we've been using for remote work, and what hasn't? And where do you think there's an opportunity to improve on the tools we use?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, you know, the irony is to say what has changed, there was an awful lot of people who were coming to an office every day just to clear out their email inbox. So, their primary tool maybe hasn't changed, the big difference for them is that the in-person meetings flip to a virtual meeting, right? And and Zoom fatigue is a, is a very, very real thing when you've just got this floating sea of faces that no sense of spatial awareness or anything like that, but also are all staring at you. It can trigger a fight or flight response or even in a one-on-one call, like If you've got a decent screen, then the person's head is actually two times larger than it would ever be (laughs) if they were standing across from you in person at a normal distance, right? It's like everyone's a close talker on Zoom, and that's a huge problem, right? And so those can lead to fatigue, to having to um, have a refresh, but yet we do them sort of back to back to back. And I think we do them because what changes when we flip from in person to virtual is what I think we're using these tools to try and get back. And that is that sense of bonds, that sense of humanity, that sense of kind of human connection. I don't know of a remote first organization that at least before the pandemic that didn't take the time to get everyone in person a few times a year, because that's when we build Hmm. uncommon commonalities. That's when we we build bonds. And even Hmm. that's when we observe how the other person works and get a better sense of their work preferences that allow us to coordinate work better with that person. We know who's a night owl and who's an early bird, and we know who prefers text-based communication and who doesn't. We can learn those things in a purely virtual space. What I found is that most teams, when they flipped to virtual, never had that conversation, which wasn't a problem at first. When you're the first couple weeks of the pandemic working remotely with people that you knew from in person, it wasn't a problem. But as 15 days to slow the spread turned into 30, turned into 60, turned into let's not use a number and what ended up being two years, we ended up starting whole companies and hiring whole people. I worked with an organization that went from who founders to 150 people during the pandemic who went 18 months collaborating without ever meeting in person. When you're in a situation like that, you have to have a deliberate conversation about those preferences. You have to have a deliberate conversation. So you have to sort of overdo what was already that good management we were talking about before in order to give people that clarity about what's expected of them, but also those little preferences and intricacies of their individual teammates as well.
0: So you you mentioned that people are trying to use Zoom to recreate some of that in-person bonding and connection and trust. And one thing we've heard from a bunch of folks is, you know, they try to solve that with more meetings. People end up with nine straight hours of video chat over the course of the day. Every 30 minutes is structured. Have you found through your research a better approach? I, you know, I, I know that that's not working for people, but I don't know if everyone knows what the right answer is.
1: Yeah. So the right answer here is, again, to get really, really deliberate. There's a fascinating study by Anita williams Woolley and Christophe Rydell about what they called bursty communication. So in other words, they set up a challenge for uh, teams of a variety of sizes that were collaborating virtually across a variety of distances and then monitored them. These are actually some of my favorite types of studies, because rather than just like, recruit a bunch of undergrads and give them a personality test and some (laughs) other inventory right there. They're actually just observing how everyone works. And what they found was the most effective teams were not in constant communication with each other. And they weren't entirely in asynchronous communication. They were in what the study authors called bursty communication. In other words, they developed a rhythm of we need to come together at this interval of time and every team is different, but we need to come together on a regular basis And stack all of our meetings and stack all of our communications so that we can sync up, so that we can check in with each other, figure out where we are progress-wise, notify each other of pivots, build bonds, all of that sort of stuff. And then we need to give people large stretches of time where they can actually do the deep work that creates value. I mean, that's the biggest opportunity by remote work and by hybrid work is that people can be uninterruptible more often, which has been the big problem before the pandemic. I mean, in under new management, which came out in 2016, we wrote about the perils of an open office. Everybody really didn't decide they hated their open office until 2018. Right. So we were a little (laughs) ahead of the curve there, but it's okay. And then by 2020, everybody realized their office was literally making them sick. Right. So, so we had to, to shut it down. And the biggest gain that we got was the ability to build people's calendar into a way that was uninterruptible. We didn't do that we thought presence equaled productivity. And so we thought in order to get a team that collaborates well, we have to bring them into sort of these endless meetings because meetings are collaboration. No, they're not. Collaboration happens when everybody knows what's expected of them and they're given the time to do it. And then they can deliver it in such a way that it is what people were expecting. And there aren't any surprises. And if there are any pivots, those pivots aren't surprises either. That happens best in bursts, not in constant communication, and, and not in lack of communication either, but if we come together. So I'm really encouraged, actually, by what hybrid and by what teams that are going to stay remote first are kind of doing right now. Between you know maybe it's no meeting Mondays or no meeting Wednesdays, or you know that that's not full on bursty communication, but it's at least setting some areas of off limits time where people can actually focus on work instead of having to do it while they're actually on Zoom.
0: Yep. And speaking of protecting time. Or being intentional about how we spend our time. One of the complaints about working from home is that the boundaries between work and life have become completely blurred. And mm-hmm. you know, we used to go into the office at nine and leave at five, and we could leave our work at our work and you know, go enjoy the rest of our life. You know, there's studies. I saw that study from Microsoft coming out that people seem to be having a third hump of work around nine to eleven p.m. now. And I was just wondering, you know. Is the answer to help people create more boundaries while they're at home? Or is it to actually just, we've been thinking about this idea that maybe it's actually just leaning into the flexibility of remote work and kind of accepting that things are more blurred than before, but trying to take advantages of that. I was just wondering if you had any personal perspective.
1: I would say it depends on what we mean by boundaries here. I don't think what most people want from their life is to go back to an eight to five, this massive block of time where I'm doing nothing but work and nothing from my personal life can intervene. And then I'm doing nothing but personal and nothing but work can intervene. Like especially those folks that are involved in problem solving or creativity, et cetera, like you don't get to pick when you have a great idea, <laughs> right? I mean, you mm-hmm. kind of do. And I wrote a whole book about the, the myths and misconceptions about creativity, but sometimes you finally figure out that perfect response to that team email and it just happens to be nine thirty. So I'm not against that in the service of great boundaries. What I am in favor of is using boundaries to teach people how to flip mentalities more often. I think the problem isn't that we're always working and not enough life or too much life and not enough work the problem is we feel like we're doing both at the same time and there's some really fascinating sort of bc before corona research Mm -hmm. on how people how resilient people are in this sort of work-life balance versus work-life integration right in other words the study that i'm referring to looked at people who who seek kind of, uh, alignment in two different ways. One is having that perfect balance. You know, I work from eight to five or nine to five, and then I just shut everything down and I turn my cell phone off and I'm unreachable. Right. And then others were more kind of integrators, right? Mm-hmm. So you can either seek to block off in order to balance, or you can seek to, to integrate, right? What they found is that when life interrupted work and it always does, Or when work interrupted life, and it always does, the integrators fared better. The people who strive for work-life balance but get that call from the school that their kid has a fever and they need to come right now. Like that can be a massive derailer to a balancer but not to an integrator. And so I think more of us working from home or working flex or fully remote, et cetera, creates an opportunity to use boundaries to help us flip mentalities back and forth. And I think that's what works better for most of us than just trying to block off that limited amount of time give you a great example i did that today actually so i woke up got our kids off to school went down to my office and worked on the new book project and wrote until i hit my sort of word count Um, And then I drove to the gym and met my wife and we played pickleball for like an hour before the courts filled up with all the people that normally come for lunch. And then we disappeared and then I came back here and and went back to work while eating lunch and getting ready for this interview, right? I'm pretty sure that that same wife wants me to help her like spread mulch in our front yard, which I'll do that (laughs) before my final call of the day, which is at five, right? And so we flip back and forth. But what I do is I use the spaces in my home as that mentality. I only do work in my dedicated office. And I only do personal stuff there, not because I want some hard line boundary, but because it helps me flip those modes and those mentalities. And I think that's what most people need and not necessarily these hard, fast boundaries.
0: So it's not one or the other. It's the ability to integrate boundaries into your, into your life. And so it sounds like you're using your flexibility to have the integrated life that you want, but then creating boundaries within it to get work done. is that, is that, Sort of how yeah. you're, yeah, uh... and in
1: and in my case, I use physical space for that. I live in a part of the country where you know you can get space in a house a little bit more easily than if you live in a major city, so I'm able to do that. Other people, it's symbols or mentalities. I, I talked to one lady shortly after the book came out. Um, we talked about using certain symbols to flip modes, etc. And she created uh, what she called "Mommy's Thinking Cap" to signal to the rest of her family that, like, no, 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 you can't mm-hmm. interrupt me right now. And it was literally she took her daughter's tiara and she rigged it up with christmas lights and basically when she was wearing it and it was plugged in it was like don't even come near me <laughs> right it was the signal to the rest of the house and a signal to her that like i'm in deep focus mode right now and i can't be interrupted so it could be that type of boundary again and by the way that example might seem mean to the other people in her house but the flip side is that when she doesn't have the cap on she can be 100 percent focused on her spouse and kids because she's not checking her phone and seeing what new emails came in. She did that already. So that's what I mean. The boundaries can come in a lot of forms, but teaching people how to use them to flip back and forth is probably more um, what I'm in in favor of because there are very few jobs, there are very few tasks we're asking people to do that won't interrupt your other spheres of your life at some point. And so resiliency seems to matter more than just creating these barricades.
0: You know, you started that off by saying that even before... Pandemic, There were some people who tend to be integrators and some people who try to be balancers or or boundary maintainers. Do you find remote work is kind of different for different people? Different folks have different approaches to it, or some folks are better at remote work than others? Just wondering if you saw individual differences. While doing your research.
1: Yeah. Well, so I wish I had good data on this, to be honest with you. So, you know, you said, you said while doing your research and there's times where I have to be like, yeah, this is anecdotal. This is my opinion. Cause I don't, I haven't seen a good study on this. I mean, my, my gut tells me that obviously the integrators are going to be more adapted to working from home, but there's a difference between working from home and working remotely. Right. I mean, there's a lot of organizations mm. that are looking at what our return to office plans are and our use of office space, et cetera. And what they've decided is that certain offices aren't opening up, but we'll get you a WeWork or a co working space membership, et cetera. And, I mean, and actually, before uh, my family and I moved into this house, which had a dedicated office for me, that was what I did. I actually did commute to a co working space that was about 10 minutes away in order to create that new boundary. Cause we were living in like 1200 square feet among the, the four of us. Right. So it was much more difficult to make that boundary. So, so you're not, it doesn't mean you, if you can't do that integration, you have to work at a company office and you can just eschew any remote assignments or whatever. there's a difference between remote and from home. It's much more about knowing what you prefer. And truthfully, I, we say this like they're opposing, but they're actually like opposite sides of a spectrum. And I think most people fall somewhere in the spectrum. Most of the pre-pandemic research on engagement, for example, showed that people who reported being in the office two to three days a week, but not all five, were actually the most engaged. I want some socialization. I want some ability to focus away from the other spheres of my life, but then I want some flipping back and forth and some freedom to decide when I work and where I work and that sort of stuff. So I know that sounds like a yes to all of the above, but that's kind of the answer. Yes to all of the above and then letting people figure out what works for them.
0: I mean, that's something we've been thinking a lot about is that there maybe isn't a one size fit all solution and different people require different setups. And so, you know, one thing we hear a lot is almost contradictory sentiments from younger folks that on one hand, they miss the the socialization of the office. Maybe they, you know, live in a small apartment with three roommates and, you know, their work from home setup is less than ideal. But then simultaneously, when, you know, asked if they want to come into the office, they say, why would I give up this flexibility? And so what will make these people happy?
1: <laughs> you know, I, I think, I mean, two things here, you know, we open talking a bit more about what works and what tools change and all that sort of stuff. I, I think we need to adopt the mentality that the office is a tool, like physical space is a tool for collaboration In the same way that a Zoom call, a project management software, a virtual office platform, these are all tools for collaboration. And every tool has its uses. You know, you can't build a house just with a hammer. You need multiple different tools. And so teams need multiple different tools for collaboration, which means they need a physical space some of the time. Different teams will need that space more often And so I think what most people are having that visceral whiplash, no way, I don't want that, I want to keep my flexibility to, is I think they work in an organization where they don't believe that the discussion is really about what tool we're going to use for when. I mean, I I can say this Mm -hmm. anecdotally from the companies I've been working with, the vast majority of them as they build their quote unquote return to office plan or return to work plan, which is a terrible name for the plan, but that's a whole Mm -hmm. other, like we could do a whole interview on that most of them are thinking in percentage of time. What percentage of time do we want our people back? And that's really not a good question. Instead of time, we should be thinking about tasks. What tasks best serve our people to bring back in person, right? And when we say that, I think we'll find that even the most resistant people recognize, yeah, there are certain things we need to do in person.
0: Yep, that makes a ton of sense. Instead of it just being, if that time is not spent well, then it can be a complete waste. We've heard lots of stories about folks you know being forced to spend three days in the office but there's no coordination of it and then they drive two hours to the office sit there do emails and then go back home and i guess this goes back to your bursty communication is whether it's structured or unstructured you want to create opportunities for synchronous engagement and just saying that you have to be back in the office for 60 percent of your time does not necessarily do that
1: no right exactly what's the point of commuting into the city for an hour just to empty your email inbox. Right. And, and, you know, even our discussion so far has only thought about it as a week, but some organizations are deciding like, well, instead of like days of the week, what if it's one week of the month, we want everybody back. And that way every department can schedule mm-hmm. every meeting and do all, of it. like every organization is different. So if you're just thinking in intervals of time, it doesn't work. But if you're thinking about, we have this space, what are the tasks that teams need to use that this space is the best tool for compared to the other tools that are available to us. You start to have a much deeper conversation about how to create an environment that that helps everybody find what works for them.
0: Yep. And I'm sure that pitching it in a logical, rational way that people can understand the why is helpful for getting folks back. I mean, I know this this is an impossible question to answer, but since you are the expert, we will ask the question, you know, let's say five years out from now, you know, what does work look like? You know, how's it different than today? And, you know, maybe like what new tools will we be using to make it work? <laughs> oh,
1: man, you Oh, you, so we, we had such an optimistic conversation until right now. I'm, I'm going to ruin it because I'm not actually that optimistic, right? People ask me, okay, what percentage of the American workforce will be remote by 2025? I think the percentage is going to double the, from before pandemic, but it was 4% before, right? So I think we're going to from 4 to 8 maybe 10% are fully remote. And I think the vast majority of people, to be honest with you, and this is where I get really pessimistic, I think the vast majority of people will be working right back in an office five days a week, partly because old habits die hard, but also because how we manage this flexibility piece matters. If we say we're flexible and we allow this much of not being in the office or this or that, but our senior leaders are there five days a week because that's where they feel they work the best, then the people who want to be senior leaders are going to want to be seen more often. So they're at the office, which is going to make the teams that they lead feel like they need to be at the office and. Over time, we'll go right back to, there were studies of this before the pandemic, we'll go right back to saying we have flex time, but secretly punishing the people who actually ask for it, right? The difference between pre-pandemic and post-pandemic about this is that the companies that do it well are going to attract more talented people. In the early 2000s, even into the 2000 teens, it was on-campus perks that partly attracted top talent in a lot of different industries. And I think flexibility is the new free food, is the new free dry cleaning, et cetera. So there will be companies that nail it, that actually do it deliberately, that do it well, that have senior leaders who are very showy about the fact that they're not at the office all of the time and they're equally productive in multiple domains. And those companies will probably have an easier time attracting and retaining top talent than the companies that go right back to the way things were, right? So there are real consequences to not doing it well. Just because I'm a pessimist and I say most companies are going to go back to the way they were, remember that most companies are fundamentally unengaging and uninspiring uh, places to work. by right? definition, yeah. Right, exactly, exactly.
0: <laughs> it's interesting you say that. One of the ways I think about it is that pre-pandemic, we were increasingly bringing the perks from Home into the office, right? Mm -hmm. Lunches, nap pods, massages. And during the pandemic, we brought the work into the home. And it feels like we did a very good job of bringing the pure productivity, task management into the home. But the parts of work that we failed to bring into the home or, or haven't figured out yet. Were some of the more positive parts of, of the office, the camaraderie, the connection. I was just wondering, how do you view that? Like, will we ever bring some of the, those positive elements of work into the home? And if so, what does that look like?
1: I think we'll get better at it. I, I think the big thing here is rem- remember what we said kind of towards the beginning, that a lot of the virtual collaboration tools we have are tools that are designed to stretch out the interval of time in between Mm. in-person interactions when it's safe to do. So I don't know of any remote first, or even like sort of hybrid organization that isn't saying, yeah, we're going to save money on office space, but we're going to reinvest some of it into bringing people back into in-person events, offsites, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that's, that's going to help a lot. The, The way that I describe it a lot of times is like, imagine doing that crazy one hour commute by train back into New York city but actually being excited about it because you only do it once or twice a month and it's the time that you get to interact with all those people um, that you haven't seen in a, in a week or so, right? It feels more like a reunion than anything else. It, it, it can be that way, right? And it will be that way in some of the organizations that actually kind of nail it, right? But hybrid is harder actually than even being remote first in, in some capacities. And that's why I say I'm, I'm actually kind of pessimistic on how many organizations manage to pull it off.
0: One more question because this is something that is near and dear to us, you know. We we talk about this concept of equity for remote and hybrid employees. And you know, I think when people think a lot about FaceTime, they think about the negative side of it. They think about overbearing managers and micromanagers. But one thing we've realized is that you might have a 150 person organization fully working remote, but you you don't see them. And so there is this concept of visibility from a positive side, seeing your team, appreciating the work, particularly for, like you said, the remote employees that do care about their job and want to advance, being acknowledged, being recognized. And so I was just wondering if you have any uh, advice for those that are building remote companies that you know want to create an equitable work environment that enables and puts remote workers on an equal level as the people that might be in the office.
1: Yeah. Well, this is a huge issue. Um, and and some of the research that I was talking about earlier that said before the pandemic, we promoted flex time, but we punished the people that had it. Let, let's get real. We're mostly talking about women, right? In fact, there's one study that shows it's, it's a bias in who requests flex time um, against women. We assume that they're requesting it because all oh, they're, you know, they can't keep their home life and their work life separate or blah, blah, blah. They have to leave early to pick up their kids off the bus. Like I get my kids off the bus. So this bias is ridiculous, but it is there. I wish they were easy solutions like, oh, just implement this OKR system or this performance tracking system and it'll solve it. The truth is it's it's not easy, but I think the most potent thing we can do is is remember that the bias will flow down from what senior leaders do, right? And so if they're there all the time, like we were talking about before, if they're there all the time, they're going to send a message that presence is still valued. If they're not, they're going to send a message that you can be a C-suite level executive And not be there all of the time and how showy they are about making time for other elements of their life and how how showy they are about taking advantage of their own flexibility will send a message downstream about what is kind of actually valued, what is actually rewarded. And then that'll help push that conversation toward what systems do we need to put into place? The systems are gonna vary by every organization, but I think it starts with recognizing that, no, we really are serious about this. And the only way I know of to show that we're serious of this is that if the people towards the top of an organization are using this flexibility just as much as the people at other levels.
0: Well, that makes sense. It all comes back to good principles and foundational leadership. So, Strategies don't change, the tactics do. (laughs) The tactics do. Well, David, I really appreciate you coming in and and jamming with us today. You've given us a a lot to think about, a lot of great ideas for how to build better remote organizations. And uh, we hope to see you soon.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for having me.